Hello and welcome back to Unleash Your Peace. My name is Ali Shoja. I am your host. I'm a positive mindset coach, a personal transformation expert, a deliberate creator, and your peace trainer. And Unleash Your Peace, this podcast over here, is your peace training. It's where we dive into different aspects about the internal world every single week. Because that's exactly where your joy resides, your peace, your creativity, everything that you love about life is within you. And we want to unlock that. We want to unleash it because when you live from this place of joy and peace and connectedness to that infinite beingness of you, that non-physical potential of you, you don't just incrementally improve the quality of your life, you actually exponentially innovate every aspect of your experiences on this physical plane you become whole you become the powerful creator you have come here to be and you become an uplifter in your family in your community and that trickles out into the world at large this is our wish for you this is our wish for everyone on this planet because that's essentially how we level up as a human race we enter the next stage of our evolution when we live in this way all right so this week we have a really fantastic guest for you i don't think you're gonna anticipate anything <laughs> that you're about to hear but before we get to our guest next to me i have my co-host nilu naderi hello and across from us sits our guest now our guest is a very interesting and uh, kind of a fascinating person. If you saw this person on the street, you would probably not think many of the things that are going to come out of his mouth. You would be surprised by them. So without further ado, Arjuna, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you start? Well, first of all, I'm a human being. I love outdoors. I like nature. I love to see people happy. I love to see people smile. I love kids. And I love to do things with my hands. I'm a musician. Mm. I play percussion. Born and raised a vegetarian my entire life. So there's a lot of uh, questions about how I maintain my physique and my size. I always find that intriguing. And I'm a social expert. At the same time, I'm an expert at being an introvert as well. Now, Arjuna, you, you alluded to your size. You are a big man. I, I mean, not big like overweight, but big as in you're tall. You have broad shoulders. I feel very safe when I am walking next to you. <laughs> How tall are you, Arjuna? I wake up 6'4", but some days I feel 6'6". Six, six. Oh. Yeah, I weigh between, depending on what I ate that day, how much water I've drank, um, anywhere from... 235 to 240 pounds yeah. and you're also a yogi yeah i, I stretch and bend pretty easily <laughs> flexible yogi vegetarian extremely spiritual and i love to meditate i have yeah. to put that in there something we share in common yes. now we're gonna go a little bit into your past because okay. it's like okay so you're you're this amazing person and you're so centered just being around you is very comforting, it's very grounding, it's very calming. But that wasn't always your path. When you were younger, it was, it was a little harder to stay grounded in this way. Just to hit a few highlights to give the viewers a, some framework. You know, when I was a young boy, I was uh, sexually abused, 
emotionally abused and tormented by twin babysitters when I was five. Twin oh, wow. babysitters? Yeah. How old were they? They were about 15. Okay, so this is something new I'm learning about Arjuna. I didn't know yeah. this. I did not know this yeah. either. Well, that's why I like, also didn't know you played the drums. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I didn't know that either. That's what You're makes... full of surprises. We've known yeah. you for how many years now? It's, uh, it, feels years. Like, well, it feels three like about years? four or five, yeah. but yeah. three. Yeah, so, the, you know, starting off early, I feel like my childhood was, was robbed. And then at the young age of maybe 12, I was introduced to um, my father's, his, his lineage, his path. Um, he was a well-known street entrepreneur at the time. Street entrepreneur. Yeah. So if any of us that are viewing or listening, if you know anything about the 80s, you know, the war on drugs, mm -hmm. that was huge and it spread in the Midwest down here on the West Coast as well. And so at that time, my father was part of one of the biggest drug cartels in Detroit. Wow. And uh, his vision for me was to be uh, next on that throne. You know, you hear a lot of people that come from those uh, inner city backgrounds, and it's usually a lot. The stories pretty much sound the same, drugs, violence. But my, my situation was a little different because it, it wasn't just so much about being influenced. I was trained, you know, I was trained and raised to be a certain way. But also... My mother was a very spiritual woman, so I, I had that those polarities, you know, Monday through Saturday. You know, I was my father's protege working in the lab, and on Sundays, you would find me at a temple praying and meditating. Were your parents together at this point? No. My mom was instructed by her mother, which she passed away on my first birthday, and before she took her last breath, she instructed my mother to leave my father. And your mom listened? Yes, thank God. That's amazing. So you're raised in this in this gang. Is uh, that an accurate word well, for uh, it? Or we'll just say I was raised in a lifestyle at the time that, across the board, this is just the direction America had taken. Of course, you know you'll never hear leadership take full responsibility. But you know when the war on drugs came in and all the drugs and the guns, that was a trend that just happened to be flooding all the inner city communities as mm -hmm. a way to. I guess, divert people from where we're trying to go now as a society. So you're raised with this violence, with these drugs, uh, with this mentality, yes. right? That is not very peaceful. Where did the flip happen, the change happen, where you started to actually reject that way of life? It's interesting because as a, as a kid, I always understood that there was something different within myself. And I always had resistance around the lifestyle but for some reason you know i didn't have a way out mm -hmm. again I, I'm, I'm being raised this way so i didn't yeah. have an option out did you feel stuck oh like totally felt stuck i was trapped and did you ever I, express to your dad like i don't want this or was it not even an option to do that no because from the outside looking in it, it looked normal this is what was supposed to happen okay. um mm. when you know that half of the young kids around you don't even have a father and yours is around you are actually happy. You're excited. Mm -hmm. so yeah. Somehow, even though it didn't feel right intuitively, the fact that I had a dad, the fact that I could call my dad and I could be seen with my dad was a great feeling. And it put me in a different uh, category within the streets. People mm -hmm. looked up to me. All the kids admired that. So I accepted it. And in my mind, I just f figured that I would do whatever I needed to do to maintain that relationship. But then to answer your, your question, the turning point it didn't happen until I was 19. One morning, I got a call to make a delivery. I'd stayed with my mom that night, 
and she gave me some instructions on what she wanted me to do for her around the house. And I told her I had to make this, this, this run. She had a feeling, but she didn't ever express it till after the fact. Um, she didn't know how to say it. She had a dream. She was a vision. She could see things. I think I took on that same skill set, but I didn't see this coming. And so I, I proceeded to, to make, make this delivery. And when I arrived, things didn't go according to plan. I was shot in the femoral artery. I realized it wasn't like in the movies because the way I was bleeding, I, I, I realized that uh, something serious is getting ready to happen. And I was bleeding to the point to where I could slowly feel life, my life leaving. Mm. And then I realized, oh, wait, I've seen something like this in one of those uh, those movies. It was, I think it was Saving Private Ryan. And one of the soldiers was shot in the leg. And they were trying to, they all were sticking their hands in there trying to tie the, his, the, the vein, the artery together. And so knowing that movie, he passed away. And so I told myself that I didn't want to go out like Private Ryan. And so the first thing that came to mind to slow the, ble- the bleeding down I remember putting my finger inside the bullet hole, but then I, I realized that wasn't working. So then I, I realized that if you're excited, your heart rate, you know, it beats. And the faster your heart beats, the more blood. So I was introduced to meditation early on, but never really understood the practice. My mother was all about self-help, mindset, power of self-love, all these different books. And she would always expose and share those things with me. And so in that moment, it all made sense. All the information, all the tools just started to flood my mind and I realized in that moment maybe I'll just try this this meditation I'll try to meditate wow while you're bleeding out yeah and you got shot in front of your mother's house right no I was shot at what we would call a a, a drug house I like I said I was going to make a delivery it's interesting for some of you that are listening you might not understand but I grew up in a Hindu faith I was raised as a Hare Krishna and some of you may know them as the, the people that run around with shaved heads and the sheets or playing okay. the loud music, <laughs> yeah. beating on the drums, jumping around, <laughs> passing out books and stickers, <laughs> which came here to America in the 70s from uh, their, their teacher from India. And so I bring that up because there is some synchronicity between that culture and some of the, the highlights of this situation. The address or the, the apartment number where I was was 108. 108 is considered a sacred number. In the Hindu faith, it's mm-hmm. 108 names of God that, wow. they, that they recite every day as a form of prayer meditation. So that was the address on the door. I just got goosebumps all over. Me too. I, I, I recognized something happening. But what was interesting before I got shot was i just gotten this tattoo on my back that said spiritually blessed with, mm. these, with these praying hands. And it had this prayer. And I remember every time I would make a transaction, I would turn around and someone would ask me, what does your tattoo say? And I would always spiritually blessed i'm spiritually blessed and then re, you know, not too long after that a week later i'm in this moment where mm-hmm. it's like it's i don't want to say i manifested being shot but I, I i manifested this experience this opportunity to really understand what that means to be spiritually blessed so while i'm laying here bleeding to death i take this time to really check in and it happens so fast because i know people panic you hear different stories about people when they're dying and all the different things they see and hear and voices but I actually went inward. It was like one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. I went to this deep state of meditation and I could feel my heart slow down. And then I just called God, I called on God and I asked God to reveal himself. And um, there was this conversation. You know, I didn't really have the whole white light experience. It was more of a sound. I heard a voice. And then there was this, this comfort. And I remember the bullet was 
the pain was so excruciating. Like the pain and the heat from the bullet itself was enough to make you want to give up and just die. And I remember saying, look, man, your mom, the love that I had for my mom was unreal. And, and it was like the peace that kept me fighting. I'm sitting here and I'm like, man, I've watched my mom her entire life through all the shut off notices, the violence that my dad inflicted on her, what she witnessed growing up while we were born, some of the encounters that we had growing up. And she would pray and her faith never wavered. Her belief in God never wavered. I don't wow. care how crazy the situation was. And so I said, God, well, look, if this woman can show up all these years and have this faith, I was like, we can't let her down now. Not like this. <laughs> Not on my watch. So I'm like, look, God, if there's a way that we can work this out, this feels beautiful. I'm like, if I could stay with you, cool. But you're going to have to come up with some way to justify this where she can understand this and be okay with mm -hmm. losing me like this. But if there is a way that I could stick around and I guess redeem, do what I'm supposed to do, let's talk about that. And so then there was this moment where I come out of my body and I'm seeing me laid out in the middle of the floor in this huge pool of blood. And God's like, well, to be honest, it doesn't usually work like that. You just don't get to come home, you know, because you've been shot. And he's like, I want you to look at your lifestyle. He's like, look at the way you're living. He's like, yeah. You're a great guy, but you got some work to do. What did his voice sound like? It was very soothing. If I have to think back, it, it was kind of like that Barry White, Barry Manilow kind of <laughs> very smooth, yeah. very warm, very peaceful, very caring, um, very reassuring, gentle. While we just had this really brief conversation, and, and what was said to me was that you will be able to come back and do everything that you're, you're called to do. And I, and I remember asking, well, how? Look at me. Like my body was all twisted up and disconfigured on the floor. And uh, he said, don't worry about it. He says, you're going to go through all the medical procedures. Basically, he's like, you're going to die. They're going to tell you this. They're going to tell you that. But just remember this moment. Remember this conversation. Because mm -hmm. this is going to be the one piece that's going to give you the strength to keep fighting mm -hmm. after you get this information from the doctors. He said, and they may tell you that, you know, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. He just kept saying, remember this moment. Nobody can take this experience away from you. And a lot of people may not believe it. So while we're having this moment, this encounter, it was really fast. Things were moving really fast. And then all of a sudden, I remember hearing the, the, the walkie-talkie from the CB. The paramedics had entered the apartment. And one of the technicians rolled me over and was checking my prostate. They were checking the bullet wound. And it went through my pelvic, shattered the, the pelvic bone, and ripped through all the major lymph nodes and veins on the oh. femoral artery and he stuck his finger in my rectum. I didn't know that was a typical medical procedure and that totally snapped me out of this state of euphoria and I was upset. <laughs> and, of, and of course it was, he was also African American like me so I totally had an attitude. We had this conversation and they told me I was in shock. I remember fighting with him and, and, and arguing with him and telling him like, dude, you just ruined my conversation with God. Like, <laughs> He's like, I'm trying to save your life. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, WTF? Like, seriously, bro? Like, and so, of course, you know, but that, that brought my heart rate back up. So and I they started I, bleeding more. So I continued to bleed out. So they said I lost about 75% of the blood in my body. Oh, oh my wow. gosh. So by the time they got me on the gurney and the stretcher, oh and I was flatlining. So I left the, the scene. I left the apartment uh, with no heart, no heartbeat. So they covered me up until so I got to see it. The news was outside and all so the neighbors. So you had the zipper pulled? Not the zipper. They just put the white sheet over oh, me. Oh, got it. Yeah. Because I was alive at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so I guess they figured, well, they'll figure out how to try to bring me back, revive me in the, in the back of the ambulance. So according to their story, I flatlined a few times on the way and they had me stable for a second. Then I flatlined a few more times on the way up to the emergency room. And I remember running down the hallway and there was this nurse that kind of, it was like one of those scenes in the movies where you see the, you're laying on your back, you're looking up, you see all the hospital lights, the fluorescent lights, yeah. and they're running and they're calling out the different codes and the scrubs. And then there was this nurse that just looked over right before I went into the, the surgery room. And the way she looked at me, it was like this message from God. She's like, I see you on the other side. And then I remember them putting the mask, the, 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 the anesthesia mask over my face. And uh, that was it. And I came out 14 hours later from surgery. Did they put any like titanium No, it's, it's interesting how they worked on me. Uh, according to the surgeon, he was one, at the time, he was one of the best. Mm -hmm. His name was Victor Swarson. I'll never forget his name. He was like, he looked like he's like eight feet tall. Huge white guy, <laughs> really good at his craft. And uh, he said, but based on where the, the bullet entered, they, it was like a very rare case of gunshot wound entry. And they experimented. So they pretty much, everything they did to me was an experiment. So all of my scars and the surgical procedures, they're not uniform like they would normally do. So they just cut me in different random places, pulled different veins from different parts. They just pretty much tried to put me back together. So I feel like Humpty Dumpty. What you said was so profound. This horrible thing happens to you, right? You, you get shot and you said you had this opportunity to yeah. go inward and connect essentially with your own soul, with God, and have this really beautiful moment. And after that, you came out, and we know you as Arjuna the yogi, <laughs> Arjuna, the mentor. Who, the mentor who brings ex cons to meditation parties and helps you know gang members leave the gang and be reform so you're doing all this incredible work in the world and in LA you're working with all sorts of nonprofits here in Los Angeles touching so many lives and the police department right recently and and now yes. with the police department yeah. so how did all of this work come about i didn't understand when I had this conversation with God. He said, I'm going to put you back in a way that you can do everything that you're supposed to do. I didn't know what that assignment was, but that was a deal that we had. And I don't know, you know, anyone in the audience, believe, you know, listening, what your spiritual beliefs are. But I was raised, if you, if you, if, if you have a conversation with God or, or you connect with God, that's like the one person. And I see God as a person like me, but and beyond that. But I feel like you can have a relationship with God no mm -hmm. different than a person and I was like well you don't want to make a deal with God and go back on your word yeah especially in the context of how we met I was like <laughs> so in my mind I'm like you don't want to F this up Arjuna he'll just drop that one day <laughs> right yeah I was like, <laughs> fail lightning bolts now, you, you never know right it's, it's, and so so after that I was paralyzed for a year um, after being shot, I went through all these other medical challenges, and, and uh, I, I almost died a few more times after I had some blood clots. There was some malfunctioning uh, with the surgeries, and I had to go back to the hospital. I had to go to emergency a few times where they had to open all the wounds up. So they opened my—I had 40 staples up my stomach, 40 staples on each side of my right leg, and then I had 10 staples on both sides of my, my hips open. But everything had to heal from the inside out. So everything that they closed up, they had to reopen it. At this time, I was a well-known street entrepreneur. 
You know, I had all the clout, all the fame, all the power. But after being shot, everybody thought I was dead. Mm-hmm. So I lost all of that overnight. And it humbled me. It really humbled me. But it also made me look at life in a whole new way. It was and, like a fresh start. Like all of that yeah. was taken. And, I, and, I, and for me, I think what really clicked was, wow. In one sense, I'm like, you're doing all this service to people. You're serving people in the way that you were taught to serve people. It really let me see the value of the type of service. It's like, yeah, we think we're doing great things. We're, you know, you're making money. People love you for this. But then you realize this lifestyle didn't, doesn't come with that, that heart connection. It doesn't come with that reward where people remember you. In a case where if I would have died, I just would have been another drug dealer dead. And I, I, that hit me hard. Like, wow. Like, so what if I would have died? You know, like, this is how I would have been remembered. And I was like, no, 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 no. Thank God for the second chance. So I really wanted to know what my assignment was. I really wanted to know. I would hear stories, you know, going to school, you hear about great leaders and people like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, where their legacies were totally different. Their legacies carried on decades later and people actually created holidays and took days off to honor these people. I'm like, no, you're not in that status based on the lifestyle that you've been living. So I switched things up and that experience gave me something that no book, no teacher, you know, no great podcast could give me, which was I had the experience to really see the magnitude of what a human being can do, you know, of what the human heart has the ability to do. But it's hard to explain that now. Like, if you talk to people about it, if you haven't had that experience, it just sounds like, oh, what the, is he talking about the heart? Yeah. So you mentioned that conversation with God before the guy put his finger up your rectum Mm -hmm. um, was one of the most beautiful experiences you've had. Have you had another conversation with him? Um, we, We talked all the way through, through the healing, through the, the, there was moments where I wanted to give up. There was moments where um, being paralyzed, I was only 19, you know, I was, a, I was still a kid. So I, yeah. I, there was moments where I was like, dude, my whole future has been taken away from me. But somehow I trusted that conversation that I had with God. I really trusted it. And I had that faith. And for me, my practice every day is how do I remind myself of that conversation? How do I tap into that moment again as I continue to grow and learn and live my life? And I was like, well, sometimes people don't understand our stories or in life, people don't understand our, understand our purpose. I realized that it's not so much about trying to convince people to understand why I'm here. I said, you'll probably do better if you just show people why you're here. Yeah. And so I tried to figure out how can I create a lifestyle and integrate that mood, that feeling, that opportunity that I had through the work that I do. All the work that I get to do is based on the heart, bringing people back to their heart, even kids, because I feel like in that is where when you guide people back to their heart. They get to have that, um, that conversation. They get to have that experience with God or whatever they call that higher source or that higher consciousness. And for me, that has been the glue that mm. makes the interactions, the work that I do so profound. Is really, I'm just guiding people back to the same source that saved and changed my life. So since your you know, resurrection mm-hmm. and going on a new path, like what's the relationship now with your dad? Interesting. We haven't really had a real conversation in the past six, six years. Okay. I tried a few times. And what you learn is that until a person is ready to do their own work, there's nothing you can really do to make someone change. But also, I wanted to honor and I wanted to protect this newfound love that I had for myself, this appreciation that I had for myself. And I knew my dad wasn't there yet, and he still isn't. And, you know, I get asked a lot. People always tell me, well, you should talk to your dad or you should forgive him. I've forgiven him. You know, I've let it go. But 
that doesn't necessarily mean you have to invite. Yeah, unconditional love is not unconditional permission. Yeah, and and I think a lot of times what we get misconstrued or we misunderstand is that we think that forgiveness and compassion means that you have to allow the same pain or the same suffering right. to still sit at the table with you. And if you look at it from a personal level, if it all starts with self, you have to have that for yourself. And when yeah. you have that for yourself, it removes certain things and it keeps Definitely. certain certain people, certain situations, it keeps it off your radar. Now Arjuna, I do want to highlight some of the some of the incredible work that you do. You have a center down in South Central and you also help kids get out of gangs what is this work that you do can you talk to us a little bit about how this came about and uh, and what you're doing finally got myself together learned how to walk again went back to the hospital showed them that i was a miracle they didn't think i was ever going to walk again they told me there was a slight chance that i would live as long as i have lived because they knew that there were medical procedures that had gone wrong they didn't tell me about but it's all good. Thank God for being a vegetarian because I used food to heal my body mm. versus uh, medicine and prescriptions. So the natural nutritional values that come with certain foods help replenish and restore and revitalize different parts of my body. From that, I decided to go back to school. I knew I needed to change my whole mindset. And I know there's a lot of people that feel like school isn't the right direction, but what it did for me, it allowed me to learn a whole new culture. It allowed me to learn completely new relationships, mm-hmm. ways to communicate with people, people that didn't look like me. It, it, it took me into all these different echelons of life that I would have never had living the life as a street entrepreneur. I'm grateful for that opportunity. And so I put myself in an accelerated master's degree program. I completed that. And that was just to show myself that I had the discipline. I needed that to show myself that regardless of what society has said or all the things that you've said about yourself, look what you were able to do. Look what you were able to overcome and how you were able to take control of your mind and focus it. Mm -hmm. And so from that, I realized it was time to leave. So I left Detroit and I wanted to go somewhere far away, far enough that usually when we hit a roadblock, it's easy to, oh, just go back. That lifestyle is easy for me. I could have done it with my eyes closed. And so I said, well, put yourself in a position if if you have these thoughts, you just can't get up and walk around the corner or drive a few hours and jump back in the game. I would have to taken three days to get back to Detroit, which would have given me enough time to turn around. Right, right. So I put myself in that position. And I think sometimes in life, the fear of unknown or the fear of taking risks because of it being something completely new, it's challenging. So when I landed here in LA, I didn't know much about the internet at that time. So Mm -hmm. I went online, Craigslist, tried to get an apartment, got scammed, my last $5,000. Uh, I had a Chevy Suburban at the time. So I drove here, realized I got scammed, got escorted out of this town where I thought I had gotten an apartment by the police. And then I just, I love water. So I just somehow Googled the beach, ended up in Venice. And I lived out of my truck for a couple months. I had never experienced anything like that. You know, we didn't really have a lot of homeless people in Detroit because you can just move into a vacant house. And most of the people that were homeless were probably just really, like they were drug addicts like master degree drug addicts, like they had a PhD at doing drugs. So you, you didn't, <laughs> there wasn't, it wasn't like here in LA, you know, it's, these are people that are just homeless, but they've figured out a way to live and still be, you know. Um, Semi-functional. <laughs> yeah, and just regular people in society. Yeah. So I felt called to honor them when I got myself together. And so that's where shared necessities kind of came from the organization and so we started working with just homeless people and we learned that there was a lot of food being distributed but no one was really 
focusing on the basic necessities, the things that we all wake up to that gets us started for our day, you know, brushing our teeth, our makeup, fresh pair of socks, fresh pair of undies. And so that was what was asked of me. And so I created a platform to do that within the few people I'd met in LA and some of the yoga friends that I had made. That blew up, went viral. But then I learned about Skid Row, downtown LA. And when I saw that, that changed me. And the one night we were out distributing uh, some of the basic necessities and we went into this one area and it had families. And I heard kids, I seen kids outside playing and, and it blew my mind. And I was like, wait, this is LA. Then I learned that City Hall was like five or 10 minutes from this area. And I'm like, Hollywood, all these actors. And I said, but there's kids. I said, there's no one working to get kids off the street. Okay, I get it, grownups, whatever. But what about the babies? So that mm-hmm. shifted my narrative. That really, that hit me so hard. And for those that don't know, I am also a parent. So that changed me. When I saw that there were kids out there, as a father, I, I couldn't fathom that. And so I did some research, found out that there were over 13,746 homeless students within the LAUSD school district. Oh, wow. So I reached out to this organization and I found out it was uh, a panel of 10 women. They thought I was a woman because- <laughs> Arjuna. Arjuna. <laughs> well, my first name came up in the email. So my first name is Paris. They didn't know. And I guess men don't <laughs> usually hit them up. So when I hit the door and I come into the room, the one lady was like, oh my God, they're gonna love you. And I'm like, well, I haven't even done anything yet. <laughs> She's like, you don't understand, but you will when you get inside. So she opens the door and there's this table 10 women and they're like wow there's a man <laughs> and I was like and that hit me like wow what do you mean and they were like men don't usually get involved in this work we have wow. one guy named Hector he's the janitor who helps clean this <laughs> clean the space <laughs> up and you know carries wow. boxes and I was like what that blew me away and so from there I was like this is my new mission so we started providing necessities for the kids also still helping out some of the homeless adults but my whole focus wanted to help kids but then what we learned is you can't just bring people around the kids because of protocol and other, um, you know, legality issues for safety and protection. And I didn't want to just be the guy that just gives kids things. I wanted to meet these kids. I wanted to hear their story. I wanted to encourage their yeah. lives somehow. So because I was a parent, I wanted to share the things that I would say to my kids or something. If I was able to talk to them, what would I say to them as a parent to encourage them not to give up on their lives? So I went further and I learned through the LAUSD homeless outreach program that there was a way to get inside. So I was connected to the executive director of their after school, before school programs. Shared my story, told them what I wanted to do, wrote up this proposal, this curriculum, and uh, we got into the schools. We worked with the kids, but then we were learning that working with just the kids wasn't enough. There was a huge disconnect between the work that we were doing with the kids and the teachers. In order to really make the program work, we realized we had to create a program for the teachers. And so that turned into this program that I created called How to Create a Mindful Learning Environment. And being a parent, you you learn that some of the things that we know or we think or that we're taught and then what a lot of the children are exposed to and what they know today, there's a huge uh, gap. There's an information gap. There's a disconnect. And I realized that that's what was happening with the teachers. You know, they weren't able to connect the new age or the, the current struggles and issues from their own with what was happening with the kids. So I was able to bridge that gap and show them how to use the challenges and the struggles and technology as a way to really tap in and create this mindful learning environment. And so from that, it got really good. But then that would have caused what I learned is that this new approach challenged the whole school district. It challenged what they were bringing into the schools. So I got hit with all these red flags all of a sudden. And you know, I'm one of those kind of people, I got upset for like five minutes. I was like, okay, well, what's next, God? 
show me what you want to do. So then I got introduced to LMU, Loyola Marymount. They had this mindful social change, social justice extension program. I started speaking. I do a workshop on social justice, social change. And uh, one of the young ladies that was in the class was the property manager of the space that I have in South Central. I was introduced to the, the space, commercial space in South Central. I didn't even know where I was. I didn't know South Central. I didn't know much of LA. I'm new. And actually being in South Central was my first inner city experience. You know, when I first landed, I was in Venice, Santa Monica area. It was interesting because I was telling my mom, I'm like, you know, I kind of feel like I'm just out here enjoying this beautiful life. And I've had all these experiences and I know there's something more for me to do. There's deeper work for me to do than just hang out on the beach, enjoy the palm trees. It all worked out. God heard heard my call or heard my prayer and uh, I was like, okay, you ready? Without knowing, I was like, yeah. And so I ended up in South Central, and you learn, wow, there's a whole other level of, 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 of the work. In Detroit, we don't really have gang culture like that, you know. Mm. Gang culture has spread based on L.A.'s gang culture, but we, we, we don't honor it to that degree. You know, when I moved out here, I learned that gang culture is like, it's, it's, no, it's, almost like, it's almost like a religion. And you learn that a lot of stuff in L.A. is built on gang culture. I had to learn all the protocols and, and, and how, that, how the streets work. So that was a whole nother level. How did you stay neutral? I think knowing what the mission was. And I looked at it like this. To really show the power of the work beyond programs, beyond curriculum, beyond nonprofit. But I really wanted to put emphasis on the human being, the human connection, Mm -hmm. the human heart. And if you can make that relationship between the human heart and the human mind. And when you meld those two together, you can be unstoppable. And I was like, well, the only real way to show that, you can't show that right in the curriculum. You can't show that right right in grants. I knew that I had to go in a place where no one would go. I had to Mm -hmm. go in uncharted territory. I had to go to a place where they would tell me that that vision sounds impossible. And that's what they say. You know, when you you hear all the greats talk about leadership or visions or being an entrepreneur, you have to dream so big that it sounds insane. No one has dreamed it before. No one has attempted it before. Yeah. And so when I was introduced to South Central, talked to certain officials, they told me at first they were just like, that sounds unheard of. Good luck. A few people laughed at me. I was up for the challenge. I was like, you know what? This is the only way that I can show that this formula is real and it's beyond just words. It's beyond curriculum. It's beyond budgets and financials and all this material mundane stuff. I took the challenge and this summer, this July, will be three years, we've been able to maintain the relationships. And you guys that were there, you know, you experienced mm-hmm. it, Neelu, when you came out. And you could see, you know, here it is, you're Persian, and we had some of our friends were white, we Latina. We had all, all ethnicities down here in an area where they would say this wouldn't never happen. And it was, not only did it happen, it was accepted, it was appreciated, it was honored, it was celebrated. My takeaway from all that is that most places that are dark, where there's dark energy, a lot of trauma, from my own experiences, that these are individuals that have yet to have the opportunity to really connect with their heart, to really live from their heart, based on whatever those circumstances are. Yeah. Crime, economic, you know, economic, yeah, circumstances, food, desert, all these different factors. That doesn't just change with money. It doesn't just change with programs. It doesn't just change because you bring resources. If none of those resources, programs, or the money doesn't create the opportunity for the person to have the experience of being a human being, you just continue to go back to default. We realized that. I realized that from my own experience. So really all I did was create the same opportunity 
that I was able to have, which was sit with myself, connect with myself, experience my heart in a way that I'd never experienced it. And that's what really was the, the glue. That's the changing point. So when you asked me that question in the beginning, what was the shift? It was, wow, this is what it feels like to be a human being. This is what it feels like to understand how your body works. And so being paralyzed was the first window to that because I couldn't move, but all my parts were open. So like I would wiggle my toes and see my tendons move in my leg. Oh my gosh. Or I could see inside my stomach. And it really changed the way I even saw me as a human. I'm like, wow, these are things that we don't even notice, that we don't mm -hmm. even think about. You think, move your finger and your finger just moves. So it really started making me dive deep. Like, wow, we are some fascinating creatures, but we have consciousness. I was like, animals do things, but they, I wonder if they're aware of like how they work, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. So I just thought that was fascinating. That was the nerd in me just, it came alive and um hey, it's also orchestrated right mm -hmm. so you have this spiritual mother you have this father who's a street entrepreneur you get trained to live this way and you know you're going to take over his work and then you have this situation that happens and all of a sudden like you you're fully equipped to be able to like infuse yourself into these communities and help them connect their mind and their heart yeah someone else can't do that mm -hmm. i mean i'm not saying you're the only person yes but but like we're always being trained for our next step yes like you were completely you were thought you're being trained by your dad but you're really being trained by life to <laughs> take take that step yeah yeah and and it's amazing because what i learned is too that like you said not everybody can do it but it's not so much about everybody doing exactly what i do but i i do believe that there are miracle workers walking around yeah. these same communities, these same streets that totally have agree. may have assignments that are in alignment with what I'm doing or just have the same calling over their lives to create a better world. The unfortunate circumstances that some of us have to deal with, a lot of people don't get that opportunity to experience themselves in that way. Mm -hmm. And I figured, well, at least the one thing the center can do, if it doesn't do anything else, can it be a space where someone in South Central can walk in and have that five to ten minute downtime to just realize wow i'm actually a human being and there is something more than just what i've been doing in my neighborhood and and that's where i tried to foster and create that space because it speaks for itself i don't it, I, there's no i'm not here to be your guru or your teacher or your the moment you check in like check in check in you'll feel it it's in us all it's a living yeah. that spirit is living in all of us just a lot of us don't have the opportunity or the space to check into that that space and yeah. if you talk about it out loud unfortunately we live in a society where people will look at you and make you feel some type of way about it and if you don't have a strong like knowing of that like if you can't really speak to that yourself then you will pretty much cover it up or shy away from it there's a a book i read years ago called escape from camp 14 and it's the memoir well based on a memoir of a guy who was born into a <clears throat> north korean camp Okay. So all he knew was living in that camp. His parents were sent in there. He was born in there. And you guys should both read it. But he manages to escape. But he does a lot of things while he's in the camp that later on he realizes it was very inhumane. Like he turns his own mother in and she gets executed. He turns his own brother in. And um, he said, I basically grew up like an animal and I had to read relearn how to be a human and it was really hard for him to like live outside of the camp once he got out it was harder for him to survive outside of the camp than it was to survive in the camp because for so many years he had trained himself he was just born into it like it's not like he knew anything else yeah but what you were sharing i mean i think it's a very extreme version right like yeah. he was never given an opportunity to be a human 
Yeah. You know, he was just beat and it was survival of the fittest. And to like get on the good side of the guards, he told on his brother and his brother and his mom and they got punished and executed and he managed to escape. And even his escape, he has a escapee a friend and he and there's electrical barbed wire and his friend run they're both running for the wire the 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 fence and he happens to stumble so his friend hits the fence first and he gets electrocuted and so he climbs on top of his, his body, body to get through but in his mind he you know he's not doing anything wrong he's just surviving i am a big fan of national geographics i study the cycles of life the ebb and flow of life from nature's perspective and to add to what you were saying how it's already designed the flow of life is already designed to work and orchestrate a certain way with the seasons the rain fires here in la and now you see in those same areas they're plush green flowers so i always look at that and i always ask hmm humans so what's our what's our calling what is our real purpose and i know we're not supposed to be like animals but Mm -hmm. yet a lot of the things we do are or more animalistic it's like just only survival but we have consciousness we have we can look at things we can reflect we can be compassionate we can change you can appreciate beauty yes and we can change things all of that to say you know for me i can't change the world but i, I figured if i could use my story my voice and and my experiences to plant these seeds within our our kids you know maybe somehow someone will figure it out or there will be some way to redirect some of that survival mentality, at least in this specific community. And I met your own kid and just really sweet young men. I met him a few years ago, so they're probably even bigger now. Yeah, yeah, they're young men now. They're probably taller than both of us now. I know. (laughs) They (laughs) They were taller than me before. They were only like 13 and 14. (laughs) Yeah. What's your relationship like with with your own children? It's interesting because, you know, they grew up in Detroit. They grew up around the same, some of the same things I grew up around. And so, you know, when a kid is exposed to that, their whole family, you know, their families, their moms, the cousins that's the lifestyle that they live but they know of their old dad they know of that i've never shown them that once my first son was born i knew i had to pull the plug on my street life because i i knew of stories of street entrepreneurs getting caught out in traffic with their families or their loved ones and it, it never ended well and i never wanted to put that on my mom or my kids so when they were born i knew i had to start figuring out another transition reshape my life so them being exposed to it though and me living a completely different lifestyle now of course they're going to lean towards what looks more natural what looks Mm. more familiar so they tease me they've come to yoga they've seen me do different exercises they've they've been to my events you know they've helped me with my center they understand it to a degree but then you have to understand our society doesn't accept a lot of different things that we you know when society doesn't understand something it's not easily accepted so i never wanted to force my way of living my new way of living on them I just wanted to expose them to the opportunity. And I think from that, we've been able to be really, you know, open with each other and honest. Of course, no parent wants to see their kid go down the same path. But then you have to ask yourself, like I asked myself, well, I went down the path that I went down and my mom was totally the opposite. So that allowed me to give a little room for them to learn and experience life however they're mm-hmm. supposed to experience it. Mm-hmm. I don't know their stories, but I just support them. So our relationship is, is it's, we're good friends. I learned a lot from them. 
we talk a lot. And they actually help me with a lot of the things that I do with the youth. One of my best events, one of my biggest events, I did a whole meditation workshop with 3,000 kids at one time. And I asked my boys, I said, well, tell me what works. What would be your perspective on how to go about this? And they gave me their insight, and we did it together. I brought them on stage with them. We had a DJ. I followed their advice, and it was a hit. After that, LAUSD wanted to sign a contract. Arjuna, we literally could talk to you for hours and (laughs) hours and hours. And there's so many more topics that we wanted to get to, but uh, we're not, are not able to. Thank you so much for being here. How can people find you? How can they get involved, donate to the center to share necessities and, and help out with all of the amazing work that you're doing? You can find us online, share-necessities.org. That's our website. We are on Instagram, uh, share necessities. If you want to just take a click and literally see the love transformation in action. And then my personal Instagram is Arjuna underscore O'Neill. Um, if you just want to hear more about the mindset that I try to practice and follow that keeps me moving forward. Yeah, we're and we're on Facebook. And then, Wonderful. you know, reach out, email, or they can connect through you as well. I do want to mention one thing before we sign off. We're part of a mastermind, mastermind together. And you brought this really brilliant concept into the mastermind, which is you, you said you take a piece of paper, a blank piece of paper in the mornings, and you fold it and put it in your pocket as a reminder of releasing any kind of judgment or any stories, anything that you have previously uh, decided about yourself or anybody else. And uh, it's such an amazing, amazing practice. I actually had one of my clients do this and uh, it's transformative. Essentially, it's transformative. The piece of paper basically represents being like a blank piece of paper. Yeah. I want to let the audience know that there is a book coming at some <laughs> and point. And a TED Talk. <laughs> and a TED Talk. This is really and I'll be doing it with you guys, so we'll be working <laughs> together. I just want to put that out there so they know. We're, we're, we're so excited about that. And, and I just wanted to let you know how incredible that idea, that concept was that you shared with us at our mastermind. And I wanted everybody out there to, to know about it to take a piece of paper, put it yeah. in your pocket, and, and really approach everyone and everything that day, including yourself, without any expectations, without any labels, without any stories, any decisions, and really magical things do happen. The premise behind the blank sheet of paper is it's a lot of us don't have the opportunity or just don't have the opportunity in this moment to change our social circles can't change our jobs and all that to say is that each day you have to go and see familiar faces you have to have familiar experiences but we know it's easy to hold on to those experiences and have preconceived notions Mm -hmm. and certain expectations which i feel like sets you up in a way that not necessarily is going to be in your best interest so for me the blank sheet of paper is just a reminder that yeah you go to south central every day You see things in South Central that will remind you of your past, that will trigger you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that just because those things trigger you, they remind you of certain things. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a rough day every day. It doesn't mean you're going to have to deal with the same violent situation or hurt person 
you can see the same person. But if you come at that situation with a blank canvas, you actually give that person or that situation and yourself an opportunity to rewrite that story. And so that's how the, the blank paper represents. And for yourself, because you can wake up and just think, oh, I had a crappy day yesterday. Most likely I'm going to have another crappy day. And so it's a very cheap, affordable, <laughs> and simple practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Arjuna, for being here with us. We, I know that we're blown away every time we talk to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, and I just want to say thank you guys, because I really intentionally try to align myself with like-hearted beings so if we're sitting at this table you guys are just as or even probably more amazing than what i do or what i say because we're all here and i trust that god connects me to those same souls so i'm just as honored and thrilled to be amongst you all so thank you neilu and ellie for the what you do <laughs> yeah and they're great chefs by the way oh yeah <laughs> thank you we do like to eat <laughs> we do all right. Awesome. Thank you. And if you want to connect with us, we are at Peace Unleashed on Instagram. That's where we share love notes with you every single day. And I have lives where I answer your questions about the internal world. So connect with us through that. And if you want to work with us at any capacity, check out peaceunleashed.com. And until next time, when we come back and dive into another aspect of the internal world, we wish you a peace-filled day. Day.